0: Welcome to Pod Academy. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, which collided with an iceberg on the 15th of April 1912. Out of the 2,224 passengers and crew on board, 1,502 died as a result of the collision. At the time of her maiden voyage, the Titanic was the largest ship in the world and widely believed to be unsinkable. The many books, survivors' accounts and the two blockbuster films based on the story are testament to the enduring fascination of the Titanic. John Wilson's book, The Titanic, The Last Night of a Small Town, explores the stories of 12 passengers and crew, their backstories and their accounts of the events on that fateful night. In a minute, we're going to talk to John about his book, but first let's hear him read a passage from it. This extract describes the start of the voyage with the Titanic just reaching Queenstown on the Irish coast.
1: The coast of Ireland looked beautiful as the Titanic approached Queenstown Harbour, the brilliant morning sun showing up the green hillsides, and picking out the groups of houses dotted here and there above the rugged grey cliffs that fringed the coast. The ship took the pilot on board, ran slowly towards the harbour with the sounding line dropping all the time, and came to a stop well out to sea with the propellers churning up the bottom and turning the sea brown with sand. It seemed to schoolteacher Lawrence Beasley as if the ship had stopped rather suddenly, that perhaps the harbour entrance was too shallow. Passengers and mail were put on board from the tenders America and Ireland and nothing gave a better sense of the enormous length and bulk of the Titanic than to stand as far as stern as possible and look over the side from the top deck forwards and downwards to where the tenders rolled at her bow tiny beside the majestic vessel that rose deck after deck above them. There was something very graceful in the movement of the Titanic as she rode up and down on the slight swell in the harbour a slow, stately dip and recover, only noticeable by watching her bow in comparison with some landmark on the nearby coast. The two little tenders tossing up and down like corks beside her illustrated vividly the advances that had been made in comfort aboard the modern liners.
0: So, John, your book is based upon 12 individuals' accounts. Why do you decide to focus on these 12 specifically?
1: Well, what I was really trying to do was to as far as possible, give the reader a kind of cross-section of the people who are on the ship, both passengers and crew. And so I was trying... If There were roughly 2,200 people on the Titanic, and if we think about what made up that number, about a third are crew. The crew is actually surprisingly big, over 800 crew members, over 300 stewards, for example. Then a third of the total are people in first class and second class, and a third of the total are people in third class. And so... What I tried to do as far as possible was to kind of preserve those proportions with my 12. So I think I ended up with two people in first class, three people in second class, uh, three people in third class, and four people who were, could be regarded as crew members, three of whom were on the Titanic, and the fourth who was uh, not on the Titanic but the captain of the Carpathia rescue ship. And I suppose just following on from that, I had certain criteria in mind when I was looking for choosing my 12, which is partly, I think, to try to correct a kind of imbalances I saw it in previous accounts. So whereas a lot of the previous accounts had focused perhaps on people in first class, you know, I was I was interested in first class, but I was equally perhaps more interested in people in second class and third class, a lot of the previous accounts had f- Focused on men, and I was equally interested in the experiences of women. So I've got, I've been completely fair, I think. In my 12, I've got six men, six women, six males, six females. And how many survivors' accounts actually exist? One of the things which I think is quite surprising is there, there aren't as, that, as many survivor accounts as you might expect. You know, if we think there are 711 survivors, you know, I had a pretty thorough search, and at least in English. I felt there were probably at most maybe about 30, 35 accounts which were long enough for my purposes. I mean, there's lots of short accounts in newspapers and so on, but in order to weave them into my narrative, they needed to be reasonably lengthy. So it wasn't that difficult to choose my 12, and I haven't actually, since I wrote the book, found many others where i find found myself thinking, you know, well, I wish I'd chosen that one rather than one of the ones I did choose. Why were these accounts written in the first place? I mean, I find it quite helpful to think of the, the 12 stories as falling into sort of three categories. There are the accounts which are written um, pretty close to 1912. There's one by, famous account by second-class passenger Lawrence Beasley, for example. The uh, first-class passenger Archibald Gracie. They're both published sort of 1912, 1913. Then the second category are the ones which are kind of written up and published his memoirs in the 1930s. second officer, Herbert Lytoller, Captain Rostron. And then the third category are the ones which were written much more recently, often with the help of friends or relatives. So perhaps someone's uh, son writing about their mother's experiences or, in one case, writing about their grandmother's experiences. So they sort of fall into these three different time periods and, and that each of those poses slightly different historical problems. But, but they're also clearly written for a range of purposes. I mean, sometimes just simply to record somebody's experiences, sometimes to try to apportion blame or explain what caused the disaster, sometimes to defend somebody's actions, like in the case of Second Officer Lightoller, you know, why did he act as he did? Why did he send lifeboats away only half full, for example? So these sort of range of kind of motivations, which which actually kind of shape the account, and I don't know, perhaps explain why it was
0: published at all. Were there any inconsistencies in the original accounts, and do you trust their reliability?
1: I mean, I tried to, I certainly tried to um, correct factual errors. I tried to resolve contradictions between accounts where that was possible, but in the end. I kind of almost quite liked it just to leave it for the reader to make up his or her own own mind. You know, I quite like, I think it's Clive James's autobiography, autobiography, which was called Unreliable Memoirs. I I, I don't know, I quite like this idea of, you know, we've got these accounts, we can try to make them as reliable as possible, but in the end, it's almost like a sort of mosaic of overlapping accounts and the reader just has to sort of use their own judgment as to which ones they trust
0: and, and which ones they don't. Did you attempt to adopt the individual's language to try and convey their characters? I tried to preserve their
1: i mean my, i suppose my starting point was to to try to remain as true as possible to the original account and I tried to preserve their i think one of the reviews described it as a multi voiced narrative, and I quite liked that. I felt that they'd really it's interesting reading reviews because often you feel the person hasn't really got the point of what you're trying to do, but I thought in that case he he really did understand what I was aiming to do. And so I was trying to preserve the person's voice as far as possible. But, of course, in the process of weaving them into a narrative, I had to kind of impose some consistency on the accounts in order to make it readable. Um, And there were some accounts where where it was was very difficult. And I suppose the best example of that probably is the account by Archibald Gracie, which is written in a style which I think was probably already was published in nineteen thirteen. It was probably already quite dated for nineteen thirteen. So he he would always for example, if he's referring to a female passenger, he would always use that form where he would use her husband's first name. So he would say, you know, I don't know, let's say she was called Sarah Smith. He he will say, Mrs. Henry Smith. And so I find myself sort of changing those sorts of things. And also actually using language which was which would be regarded as sort of politically incorrect today. So he would often refer to or occasionally refer to passengers from southern Europe as kind of dagos, or he would say you know, they haven't got our Anglo-Saxon sense of bravery and chivalry. And in fact, his uh, his account is infused with this sense of there's a chivalry, this sort of chivalrous approach to unaccompanied female passengers. So he's always saying he's going to offer them his protection and so on. So that was the one that I found most difficult, and I really worked very hard on it to try to on the one hand preserve his voice but on the other hand to kind of i don't know just to to make it more consistent with the other accounts and also just simply just to make things like the kind of punctuation more um
0: more modern really do you feel like you used any authorial license in your writing to fill in gaps in the narrative for example
1: i think i find that there weren't too many gaps because you know usually you get one of the 12 de- describing Something each of the accounts was quite useful to fill in a gap. So for example, there's a very good account by um second class passenger Lawrence Beasley of the Titanic arriving in Queenstown in Ireland and and then leaving, which nobody else really describes. So it was possible to fill in the gaps in that way. But what I found it very difficult to do was particularly when the the kind of story got more exciting i had to construct myself a sort of narrative of when things happened you know when was when did the ship hit the iceberg when did they start launching the lifeboats uh when did they finish launching the lifeboats when did the ro- the distress rockets uh when were they fired off uh when did the ship finally sink so i sort of constructed this chronology for myself and then it was quite a difficult task to to relate my 12 stories to that because in a sense I was sort of juggling these 12
0: stories and uh, that, that was quite quite tricky. Why do you think people still care about the Titanic? Is there anything interesting left to say about it?
1: Yeah I mean I think I suppose as a, his- a social historian the thing that really fascinates me is the idea of all these people being brought together on this uh, on this one ship and their individual sort of histories. And before I started working on the book, I, I'd never heard of the Encyclopedia Titanica website. But once I discovered that, I found that absolutely fascinating, the idea that there's like a page there for every single crew member or passenger. And, of course, the amount of information varies quite a lot. And in some ways, it's perhaps the accounts of the third-class passengers which are the most poignant. Cause sometimes you might just have somebody's name, how old they were, What their job was, how much they paid for their ticket, and that's about it. I think the thing that still fascinates me is that this sense of you've got like sort of one voyage, two thousand two hundred people's stories, Um, and I never really got tired of following that up. There are always like sort of new stories to uh, sort of check out and find out about. I mean, I think there are still a lot of unanswered questions. You know, why did they not see the iceberg? Why was the ship going so fast? Why were the lifeboats sent away only half full? Why did the Californian not answer the Titanic's distress calls? But I suppose I felt that a lot of those issues had been explored pretty fully in previous books. Certainly the story of the Californian has been, and it just seemed to me that however much research I did, I was unlikely to come up with anything really new. Whereas I suppose what I hope With this book, what I could do is, in focusing just on my 12 people, take a sort of necessarily quite restrictive approach, but hopefully kind of get into their experiences in more more detail. So to be more selective, basically.
0: To what extent do you think life on Titanic was representative of life during that era?
1: That's an interesting issue. I mean, one of the things that I was quite struck by around the time that uh, the book was published, was the Julian Fellows series, which was shown in ITV about the Titanic, which there was a huge build-up for, and I followed that quite closely. And actually, I felt the, the four programmes were, were quite disappointing, really. But I think one of the things he tried to do, which I felt didn't really work, was to kind of um, suggest that the Titanic was a kind of Downton Abbey. And actually, when you look at the... Um, people particularly in first class there are very few people who could be considered as sort of english aristocrats i mean there are one or two but not many and actually the number of people in people in first class were much more typically american or canadian sort of millionaires whose money had come from commerce rather than sort of landed aristocracy so i think there are quite a lot of myths particularly about first class but i think particularly in second class and third class the kind of human detail of people's stories again It does offer you quite a fascinating insight into a sort of range of issues that interest me as a kind of social historian, you know, things like poverty, wealth, migration, social class, language, nationality, uh, technology. I mean, the whole issue of work I find quite fascinating, particularly for the sort of junior crew members. So one of the people I chose was Harold Bride, the assistant wireless operator, and uh, it was very interesting finding out about the development of, you know, early radio, Marconi, and so on. And then one of the other junior crew members is Violet Jessup, who was a stewardess in first class. And again, I think that really provides a sort of fascinating insight into the work of somebody as a steward class, as a, the, the work of somebody as a stewardess where what comes through from her memoir is a real sense of of exploitation that she felt. In fact, when she wrote up her memoir in the 1930s, she actually used a lot of pseudonyms. She described some people who are real, we know to be real characters, like Thomas Andrews, the ship's designer. But there are a large number of passengers. There's nobody of that name in the Titanic passenger lists. I think the reason that she did that was that she was still employed as a stewardess in the 1930s, and she wanted to sort of convey the sense of exploitation that she felt at the hands of you know, fairly rude first-class passengers.
0: You set out to convey this story from the perspective of third-class passengers, and especially immigrants. This was the start of the age of migration. So what do you think the story of the Titanic can tell us about the period?
1: Well, actually, I mean, migration had been going on for a much longer period. But uh, mass, mass migration. Yeah, I mean, it certainly accelerated, yeah. From the, I suppose, early nineteen hundreds. I mean, one of the interesting things, of course, is that the point has been made by other people is that it was really migration that financed these liners. They could they were only commercially feasible because of the uh, large number of migrants that they carried in in third class. I suppose I found it quite interesting to reflect on my twelve because actually I had five five of my twelve were people who were migrating in one. Way or another, and I suppose one of the things that came from that was just how diverse people's experiences were. You know, some people had already been in America and they'd gone back to. Certainly, in the case of my Finnish couple, they'd already both been working in the states. They went back to Helsinki, got married, and then they were returned to the United States. Other people, of course, you know, were going to start a new life. They hadn't been there at all. People were faced with quite with a dilemma, of course, because. I mean, typically the mother and the children survived and the husband or the father didn't. And again, I find it quite interesting to see how people responded to that. In some cases, people carried on, went on, like the Goldsmith family, for example, they carried on to Detroit. And Frank and his mother, Frank grew up in Detroit. Uh, his father had drowned. In the case of the Hart family and the Brown family, they didn't, once they, Thomas Brown, Benjamin Hart drowned, they... The um, Bryans did go as far as Seattle and stayed there for a few days and then they basically returned back to South Africa. Uh, The Harts stayed in New York for a few days and went went home. It just sort of brought out for me how diverse people's experiences were, really, whether they'd been there before, whether they carried on with their original plan or returned home, uh, their motivations for going, what they were able to take with them.
0: The book's subtitle is The Last Night of a Small Town. Could you explain the small town metaphor? Yeah, I mean this is um, many people
1: know that probably the most famous book about the Titanic still is Walter Lord's book A Night to Remember which was published in 1955 and this phrase, the last night of a small town is used by Walter Lord. It's not very prominent in the book, it's actually in right at the back in the Acknowledgements where he says something like the Titanic was really the last night of a small town it was that big writing his book had required the help of quite a lot of people and so on and so this really appealed to me i I was very clear from a very early stage that i wanted that to be the subtitle of the book so this sort of metaphor really sort of struck a a chord uh with me you know the sense that everybody was on the ship whether they're male or female adults or children rich or poor people from around 20 at least 20 different countries and I suppose one of my reflections on writing the book is that, you know, perhaps I could have gone further with the metaphor than I did. And you know, even if we just think at a fairly basic level, you know, what is a town? What makes a town different from a village? A town has got streets and houses, the Titanic had corridors and cabins. You know, perhaps I could have gone a bit further in exploring that metaphor. And also maybe gone a bit further in exploring the interactions between between the people in the sense I suppose in the same sense that we think of inhabitants of a town interacting with one another yeah no I, I mean i still i still really like that as a sort of metaphor for the for the ship and of course the ship is a sort of perfect container for these people's experiences that you know people sort of really appeal to my imagination the idea that people are making their individual journeys to the ship from you know all over the place and then they're sort of on the ship for on the ship for a few days and then of course if it had safely reached its destination then they would sort of kind of disappear off to wherever they were going to and I was very struck in reading people's stories how they would often come from some little tiny place you'd never heard of, then they were on the Titanic and then they would sort of, survivors would, would, would sort of go off to some little tiny town in America that you'd never heard of
0: Now we're going to hear John read another passage from the book, from Archibald Grace's account, just after the Titanic had sunk before him
1: What impressed Archibald Gracie was a thin, light grey, smoky vapour that hung like a pall a few feet above the broad expanse of the sea that was covered with a mass of tangled wreckage. It may have been caused by smoke or steam rising to the surface around the area where the ship had sunk. At any rate, it produced a supernatural effect. Added to this there rose to the sky agonising death cries, the wails and groans of the suffering, the shrieks of the terror-stricken, and the awful gaspings for breath of those in the last throes of drowning. Help! Help! Boat ahoy! Boat ahoy! And my God! My God! were the heart-rending cries and shrieks of men, which floated continuously for the next hour to grace in the others, over the surface of the dark waters. As time went on they grew weaker and weaker until they died out entirely.
0: The book is full of lots of memories and images from the individuals' accounts. So, which of these is the most affecting or poignant for you personally?
1: I suppose one of the most poignant moments, inevitably, is when people have to say goodbye when the lifeboats are being lowered. So, when, you know, typically in these family groups, the um, mother and children are, are in the lifeboat and, and saying goodbye to their husband or, or father. And there are some very sort of poignant uh, moments associated with that like for example when Thomas Theobald who's not a member of the Goldsmith family but he's sort tra- of travelling with them takes off his wedding ring and, and gives it to uh, Frank Goldsmith's mother and says you know make sure my wife gets this and there's a photograph actually of um, the Goldsmiths on their arrival in Detroit and the photograph you can still see that Emily Goldsmith is wearing these two sort of wedding rings but I think one of the other things that I find very sort of poignant and interested me was actually after the titanic sinks the description of the people in the in the lifeboats and i really wanted to kind of extend the book to cover that because i think the way in which they sort of describe the stars and the night and, and and the process of waiting for the um arrival of the rescue ship is very sort of evocative And i felt that that was potentially one of the kind of strongest bits of my narrative really but i don't know i think there's all sorts of Fascinating sort of moments of kind of kind of de- detail even going back to the sort of departure of the ship from ship from Southampton
0: could you tell us more about the Beasley account?
1: The Beasley account is very interesting because he was he was actually trained as a scientist he'd studied natural sciences at Cambridge and then he'd worked as a science master at Dulwich College in London and I think on the one hand his account has got the sort of accuracy of a scientist and his desire to find out what you know what happened and so on, but it's also quite sort of novelistic as well. And one of the things that I really enjoyed was because his account is because he describes people so accurately, even if he doesn't actually name them, it's possible to work out who they who they were. And so I, I got a lot of satisfaction out of reading how he described a particular crew member or passenger, and then basically going away and using Encyclopedia Titanica to as far as possible well, what I tried to do was to name uh, as many of those people or to put names to as many of those descriptions as I as I could. You can't always do it, and there are some errors in it, but, it, but, it, but it, was, it was a lot of fun doing that, actually.
0: How does writing for a popular audience differ to writing for an academic one? And do you feel like you've learned anything new from the process?
1: Well, I, th- I suppose the first thing to say is it's totally different. And, um, I mean, it was really when I was thinking of writing the, the book about the evacuees that I, I spent a long time trying to work out how to do it because, I mean, the evacuation was something which I'd done a lot of, you know, academic research on. I'd written articles about it and I knew a lot about it. And, I mean, without blowing my own trumpet too much, it, it would have been fairly easy for me to write a conventional, you know, academic book about the evacuation. But I was very clear that I didn't want to do that and I wanted to try to write a more sort of popular book But it was something I really struggled with for quite a few months, working out how to do it, because it was really, in a sense, unlearning everything you'd been taught. Mainly, I think, because in a more conventional academic book, people's stories, if they were there at all, would be kind of very much in the background to perhaps illustrate some particular point you want to make or themes that you want to bring out. Whereas what I realised i had to do if i was to kind of engage a wider readership was to bring those people's stories right to the kind of f- forefront uh and basically kind of although i had a lot of contextual material and evacuation i did i hadn't really any people's stories so i had to kind of go and and kind of find those and then it was really the process of constructing a narrative and weaving those people's stories into it and actually what i did at that stage was that i i kind of used people's stories almost as a kind of device from stopping me from lapsing back into my sort of conventional academic mode, you know, which would be to kind of uh, look for themes, perhaps illu- use people's quotations from people's stories to kind of illustrate those uh issues, whatever it was. Whereas I found that once I got into people's stories, it, it sort of stopped me from, from doing that. And I suppose there are other differences as well. I mean typically a kind of more academic book would have a very long introduction where you discuss problems with the sources, for example, whereas it became clear what I needed for this was a much shorter introduction. And I find it quite helpful actually showing a draft of the Evacuees book to my to my wife, who's not an academic and not a historian. And she sort of... She read a kind of draft introduction and she said something like, you know, I don't want to... I don't want to I'm not, I'm not interested in the problems with the sources. I basically want to kind of trust you and get on with the story and I find that quite helpful and I've tried to remember that, so certainly in the Titanic book there's quite a short introduction which kind of kind of tries to flag up some of these issues, but then basically tries to get into the story and then at the end I've got this sort of note on sources for the reader who wants to kind of
0: follow that up or who's interested in that. That was John Welshman talking about his book, Titanic, The Last Night of a Small Town.